Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. We're proud to be sponsored once again by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, Beckerman Public Affairs. Tell your story with Beckerman. And got a great show coming up for you this evening. After uh, a little longer extra uh, Pesach hiatus, apologize for that, but it's a lot going on in my world as well as your world, a lot going on in the world of politics. I want to introduce our first guest, Lahav Kharkov uh, from the Jerusalem Post, the senior Knesset reporter, does frequently interviews uh, leading figures in Israeli politics and covers the world of Israeli politics really, really closely, here to give us the inside scoop. Lahav, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks for having me. And especially coming from Israel, I appreciate it with the time difference and everything. First question for you. Elections in Israel, highly anticipated. March 17th, they happened. It seemed like there was a mandate for the right in that. A little bit of more of a, uh, a surprise for people about how well the right did or how well Likud did in particular. And we're sitting now uh, on the on the eve of May and there still isn't a coalition. What's going on over there in Israel? Well, the deadline to build a coalition is um, in about a week, a little less than a week anyway. And uh, usually these things do sort of go down to the wire. Uh, people draw out the negotiations. So the fact that there still isn't a coalition isn't really that surprising. Uh, but last night we had the first two okay, so, coalition Okay, so this agreements. is just regular Israeli yeah. type of uh, politics. Yeah, it's it's pretty usual Israeli politics, and in fact, they're they're almost um, duller than usual because you know when when things are closer, you know when when one party does this time, you know Likud won by a huge margin, but when things are cutting a li- it a little closer, you know there's a little bit more tension of whether there'll be a coalition or not, and this time it's pretty clear, you know, that we'll have a government next week. Okay, well that that's you know certainly good. I think that's uh, what kind of government is it going to look like if you had to prognosticate uh, uh, right now? And I guess maybe just back up for a second. There had been rumors every so often over the past couple weeks that uh, they were going to go for a unity government, and I assume that that's off the table right now. Um, I wouldn't say it's totally off the table, but it's unlikely. I mean, you know, again, the deadline is in less than a week, and Netanyahu hasn't really been negotiating with Zionist Union in any way. So I, I would say okay, never so, say so never, what the government but look like? it's Will unlikely. Will it be as expected that you'll have Likud essentially in the, in the middle uh, or at the as the anchor of the government, Bait Yehudi, uh, Moshe Kahlon's Kulano party, the Haredi parties, and is is so it's it's going to be as expected. There are going to be any any yeah, surprises that we can see. Obviously, uh, diminished from the last from the last government. Israel Beitenu was a party partner, I guess if you will, with uh, with Likud. Now they split off into their own faction and uh, certainly diminished. Will Victor Lieberman continue in the foreign ministry? It looks like it. Yes. Yeah, that you know, that's surprising, right? I, I, how how did he pull that off? If we to get a little bit. Um, it it is and it isn't. Uh, Lieberman is is a tough negotiator. He knows how to get what he wants, and uh, that's what he wanted. He wanted to stay where he was. What he really wanted was the defense ministry. But Netanyahu made it clear to everyone from the beginning that he wants to keep uh, Bogey alone as defense minister. So then Lieberman said, you know, that I want to stay in the foreign ministry or or else. And technically, Netanyahu can form a coalition without Yisrael Beitenu, but Kahlon made clear to Netanyahu that he doesn't want to be in a coalition with only 61 Knesset members. It's very hard to get anything done that way when you have such a narrow majority. Now, Kahlon was seen as the kingmaker or the swing between the two sides. 
and or and the, the kind of the linchpin, or the holding the vital center. Uh, you know, Israel always has this. Uh, you know, has this uh, kind of like Yeshatid was last time around. Though Yeshatid really has drifted to the left. Uh, anything surprising or anything? Let, let's. What are the expectations of Moshe Kaplan? Let's start with that. Well, what is it that the public is uh, want, thinks that Moshe Kaplan is going to change? Um, I think the public thinks that Moshe Kaplan is going to bring some sort of huge economic reform. Um, the issue in Israel is that Israel's economy on the whole is doing very well. There's also very low unemployment. But the poverty levels inside Israel are pretty high. In other words, the economy is doing well, but that's not trickling down to the average Israeli. And uh, people see Kaplan as somebody who can help, you know, the Israelis feel that, you know, feel that good economy at home. And uh, housing is a huge thing, huge issue in Israel because the prices of housing have gone up like crazy to a point that, you know, most young Israelis who want to buy their first house, uh, they, they just can't afford it. And uh, they expect Kahlon to bring some sort of reform that will lower the housing prices. And there are a lot of ideas that Kahlon has. He has a very detailed platform. Uh, but one of the major things is, is freeing up the land, the actual physical land in Israel, from uh, government ownership. Like the, the government owns most of the land in Israel, and the government decides what to sell and when to sell it and how much to sell it for, and uh, Kahun wants it to be more privatized, to be run as more like a business. Now, he had great success, and his, his rise to fame in the Israeli public was as a could minister for communications, where he deregulated the uh, the, particularly the cell phone market, and he made cell phones yeah. really ubiquitous in Israel, which in a lot of ways can, you know, is, is so much about the recent boom in Israel, particularly around uh, uh, communications and high-tech. Uh, how will he replicate that type of success? Uh, in, because uh, one says you're dealing with a, a specific sector of the economy, then you're moving on to, you know, rather large... Uh, a little bit of a larger uh, situation with with some very uh, structural and tractable problems like uh, social welfare payments uh, for a large sector of uh, of the population, housing, which is uh, as you said, uh, land reform. But there's still some vestiges of socialism in Israel. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of vestiges of socialism in the Israeli economy, and I wouldn't say that Kaplan's trying to get rid of them all either, because he. He is, you know, essentially his his philosophy is to open up markets and to have as much competition as possible, but he's still very much um, rose, you know, in this election on a, a social platform, on a platform that people thought of increasing social services and things like that. So it's going to be very complicated. And uh, we also have Shoss in the coalition, and they're very socialist. Uh, their platform was all about raising minimum wage, cutting taxes on basic food items, which, uh, by the way, just today, um, Netanyahu agreed to Shas's demand to um, have no tax or no sales tax on basic food items. But uh, these are all, I guess no tax isn't actually a socialist uh, Right. agenda, but the government's going to have to probably find a way to get the money from somewhere else. But things like raising minimum wage, uh, even though it was just raised this year, um, so there will be a little bit of conflict between uh, Derry, the head of Shas, and uh, Kaplan. Right, and this is a good segue. We're talking, we're in this class, and we're talking politics, uh, Israeli politics specifically, with all 
Karkov of the Jerusalem Post, a senior Knesset reporter, and we're talking coalition building. And uh, interesting segue, you mentioned Shas. I did leave Shas out of the original, um, my, my original list of parties in the coalition. Uh, Shas ran very aggressively on a social platform, uh, interestingly enough, for a religious party, very much on the social inequality thing, very much on that, on that social platform, kind of owing to its roots of the uh, underdog Sephardi population. Uh, and you have, uh, with, there's a lot of competition right now amongst, I guess, the three religious parties, by Yehudi, uh, United Torah Judaism, and Shas for different portfolios. Can you explain to us a little bit what's going on between, between them? Because they seem to want the same portfolios. It does seem that Bennett is getting the education ministry, uh, but there's, there, there's a lot of jockeying going on in that regard. Well, you know, last night both uh, Kulano and United Torah Judaism signed coalition agreements. So United Torah Judaism, we know what it wanted, and it got what it wanted. So it, it has the health ministry and the finance committee of the Knesset. So they're not really competing with Shas or um, by UD. But by UD and Shas both want the religious affairs ministry. I, it seems most likely that Shas will get it, and maybe by UD will have a deputy minister in that office. But uh, by UD is, is still insisting, so we'll have to wait and see what happens uh, finally. But, you know, um, by UD didn't object to some of the reforms that were made in the last government being canceled, um, things like, you know, criminal sanctions for Haredim who don't serve in the IDF. But there are other things that by UD did support. Um, for example, it was called the Tohar Bill, which um, it – it's sort of opening the rabbinate to the free market and not totally the free market because it's not, you know, conservative reform, things like that. But it's so that when somebody wants to get married, they could go to any town or any rabbi who's, you know, certified by the rabbinate to get married and not the one in their town. And this is something that the Haredim uh, opposed. It's sort of complicated. But um, and they want to cancel that, and it's you know little things like this that sort of make religion a little bit easier for the average Israeli to to swallow because there are a lot of secular Israelis who I, I mean it, most Israelis would want to get married by a rabbi, but you know it's one of their few sort of encounters with organized religion, and it's not necessarily a positive one. And and Bayit UD really wants to make. I guess religion sort of friendly or, or religious services friendlier the average Israeli. And for the Haredim, their concern is that they want, you know, everything to be as uh, machmir as possible. I can use that word because it's an Orthodox radio station. <laughs> they want everything to be as machmir as possible because they want to be 150% sure that everything's okay. And it's sort of two different philosophies of what, how the religious services ministry um, should go. And, uh, it looks like Shas will get the ministry and that there'll be a turnaround back to the more Mahmir attitude as opposed to the more friendly attitude. You know, it's interesting the way you frame that as a Mahmir Mayfield argument, and I think there is some merit to that, but it kind of turns things on its head if you want to look at, and we could do a whole show on this, I don't want to get too much into the religious point of view, but you, you, you brought up a very interesting fact that, that the, the um, you know, the by UD, which is the remnants of the Mafel Party, the National Religious Camp, uh, would seem to have more invested in the rabbinate and the and the uh, structure of the rabbinate than would a Haredi party like Shas and some of the other Haredi parties. And it's interesting that the that on religious issues, the Haredi community kind of stands for the status quo. Uh, if you, 
I think I've, I've seen a lot, and you know, just very quickly because I want to move on to some other stuff, is that is it is it really? It's kind of been framed as about jobs. I mean, that's really been you know a lot of the rabbis, a lot of the rabbinate, particularly in the local level around the country, are mostly Haredi rabbis these days instead of nat- national religious rabbis, and they're concerned that this has been a great jobs program for m- many in the rabbinate who are affiliated with various political parties on the Haredi side. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that jobs are an element here, and this is a way that, you know, the Haredi parties can give jobs to rabbis who are friendly to them. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the, the Haredim in Israel don't really use the public religious services that much. They have their own rabbis. They have their own hechsher. You know, they they so the jobs element is definitely important here because it's not necessarily that they're being machmir for themselves. Right. You know, it's, it's things that affect other people. Okay, so let's talk about the opposition for a second, and more specifically, uh, the the Arab parties, um, and not the Arab parties so much as the fact that they you know, were more successful than they were in the past, but specifically the idea of having a, such a large segment of the having such a large segment of the of the Knesset really outside of the possibility of coalition partners, and therefore how that, how that um, kind of skews the calculations when it comes to building a coalition. It, it, it almost seems as if, even had Netanyahu not done uh, exceedingly well and be able to form a coalition of close to 70, uh, as it seems that's going to happen, it the left almost certainly can almost never form a coalition because they, have, they, they can't count on the Arab parties. Is that, is that dynamic changing? How are the Arab uh, the Arab list being viewed uh, in Israel with their success? You know, during the election and afterwards, I, I said to a lot of people that I think people are sort of overestimating the power of this joint Arab list. I, I think you know it has a psychological impact. I think that Israeli Arabs feel more sort of empowered in Israel's democracy, which is not necessarily you know which, which is a good thing. I mean, it's good for people to feel like they can have an influence in democracy and they are equal citizens because they certainly are under law. But um, the the party, when you add up the three Arab parties that make up the joint list, you know the the seats that they had in the last cassette, it was only eleven, and now they have thirteen. And so last time there was a block of eleven seats that wouldn't enter any coalition, and this time there's a block of thirteen seats that wouldn't enter any coalition. And I, I, I don't think that it's it makes such a huge difference. I just uh, it, you know, if he would, the the Arabs themselves, they kept saying we're going to have at least fifteen, but uh, they they didn't. They ended up with thirteen, and I I just think that it's 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 really not such a huge factor. It would have been if Netanyahu and Herzog had been you know tied or closer because they could have sort of supported a minority government from the outside if Herzog had led the government, but that's not what happened. Okay, let's talk very quickly. I, I we a lot. I wanted to cover a lot of ground and. So little time, as always. Uh, let's just talk very quickly about those uh, specific in the party dynamics of, you know, the, the winners and the losers uh, of, for a second. And just take a shot for a second, okay? Um, we, Israel has a history of flash-in-the-pan uh, type uh, of parties that do very, very well and then are diminished. Um, now they they're not Yeshatid actually I think did better than some were predicting kind of the total demise they did a little bit better but they're outside of the government and 
you know, do they just get subsumed into the Zionist Union camp? How do they go their own way? Uh, you know, do they continue as a party, or is it really just Yair Lapid as a uh, you know, figurehead and his fellow travelers? It's it's hard to say. You know, it's hard to really predict the future. I think that the they did bad. They did well because they ran a very very good campaign. But they, whether they'll be able to build them up themselves up from the coalition or not, I, I really think remains to be seen. There are a few people in the party who have like risen up as as sort of stars in the Knesset. They've done very good work, and and their names have become known. You know, like Shai Piron, who was education minister, um, and there's a few others. And so I, I wouldn't say at this point that the party is just Yair Lapid, even though it is very focused on him. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't want to predict their death. I know a lot of centrist parties die out very quickly in Israel, but I, I think that they, they do have a shot. Um, I think it's unfortunate that they weren't willing to negotiate entering the coalition at all. And I think maybe there could have been a place for them, but I think that there's a lot of personal animosity between Netanyahu and Lapid. Although there's personal animosity between Netanyahu and Bennett, and they're still probably going to be in the same coalition. Right. I guess uh, maybe we'll close with that. So Bennett uh, specifically uh, had seen that he was ascendant, and in the end, he was kind of, by you, he was cut down to size, or I guess that's I better word, <laughs> not not the most uh, appropriate word, but it, it cut down, to, you know, to eight seats. Uh, at one point, he'd been pulling about seventeen seats, and there was this uh, uh, thought that he was going to be a, a you know major party one day, prime minister. Um, you know, then right after the spin was that he kind of took one for the team and sacrificed some of his seats so that BB could come in first, but really hasn't been rewarded with the. Uh, with coveted, you know, top tier ministries, unless I, I think the education ministry is, is pretty significant, but I think he wanted more. Um, and where does that leave uh, him and his party and the trajectory that he was looking to kind of, uh, you know, he had a incredible success in really resurrecting uh, the, the national religious movement with Bayoud, but now, you know, some days you're you're in an upward trajectory. Now, is he in a downward trajectory, and what does that mean for his party? Well, you know, there, there was sort of this idea that Bennett was trying to turn UD into Likud number two. Um, and so he was trying to open the party up and make it friendlier to secular people as opposed to not just religious Zionists. And that idea didn't work. You know, Bennett's idea didn't really work. I mean, he does have a couple secular people in the party, but it, it's clear that the party is sort of, you know, national religious party number two as opposed to Likud number two. Um, and whether, um, I mean, whether Bennett can survive in the long run in a party like that, I think remains to be seen. Um, he's not so sectorially focused. He is somebody who has a broader vision and it doesn't just want to focus on the religious Zionist community. So, it, first of all, I don't know if Bennett will be happy with the trajectory himself. Um, and on the other hand, there is pressure within the party. For example, there was a lot of pressure within the party for him to take the education ministry. Uh, and Bennett, for a long time, was insisting that he should get the foreign ministry and not labor in because the UD has two more seats. And after a while, Bennett sort of did what his party wanted him to do and took what is a traditional national religious party position. 
I do think that part of the reason by UD dropped by so many seats uh, from what it was expected. I mean, at one point it was pulling at, you know, twice as many of the eight seats that it has now is because there was a sort of panic right before the election of the right would lose, and so every, everyone just supported Netanyahu to be sure that he would be prime minister. And, uh, you know, it depends on how things go with the next election. If there's less of a feeling that Netanyahu or the Likud could lose the leadership, then he he has room to grow again, I think. I think that a lot of people moved to Likud at the last minute. Right. And if we should... Two seconds for one more question is that, and I, and I know, you know, the relationship with the president uh, is, or with America right now, is particularly complicated, particularly fraught, and we, we fret about it here on this side of the pond uh, quite frequently. Um, but it's unclear how much that affected the election uh, in Israel, whether Netanyahu had a good relationship with Obama or not. How much will this uh, crisis, or at least the perceived crisis, over here impact the new government? Uh, what type of pivots, if any, will uh, Netanyahu do, uh, will Israel do, uh, with regard to uh, augmenting or improving the relationship with the American administration? Well, first of all, I think that, okay, but the polls didn't budge after Netanyahu gave his speech to Congress. So uh, as far as a purely electoral you know, point of perspective, you know, as far as the numbers are concerned, it didn't do anything. But I think, you know, Obama is very unpopular in Israel. Um, There was a poll just this week that Israelis, like, it was like 63% of the people polled thought Obama was the worst president ever for Israel, and then only like 13%. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like that, thought it was Jimmy Carter. Uh, So... Yeah, so Obama is very unpopular in Israel, and so when Israelis got the sense that Obama is is sort of not being fair to Netanyahu, then they sort of stood behind Netanyahu. So the the tension didn't necessarily hurt Netanyahu politically, but then when you're looking at a broader, you know, not just, you know, the election, but as how it's going to impact the country, I think that, you know, the American-Israel relationship is very important to the Israeli people, and I think that Netanyahu also knows that it's important, um, you know, and on so many levels in Israel. Uh, it's hard to say what exactly Netanyahu is going to do because he really does oppose the steps that Netanyahu is, that uh, Obama is taking in the Middle East. And it's a fine line to, on the one hand, you know, stay friendly and on the other hand, you know, critique his, Obama's policies in order to defend Israel's vital interests. So I think that it's going to continue to be a tightrope. Um, what's a, a positive indication, I think, is I just saw reports this week, I believe it was in foreign policy, that uh, that the State Department has been asking um, France to hold off on a petition to the UN Security Council that it wants to make to have it recognize Palestinian statehood. Um, so that means that, you know, the U.S. State Department is has not abandoned Israel um, as they've been reassuring us for months. So that, that at least is a positive indication. Okay, uh, and uh, sorry, Ron Derber stays in place, yes or no? Ooh, good question. I'm going to say yes because I okay. think he's so close to Netanyahu that if he's kicked out, it's like a personal affront. Gotcha. Okay, Lahav Kharkov uh, went a little bit over time, but I appreciate you joining us from Israel, giving us the latest on coalition building, which should be wrapped up this week. 
Uh, new Israeli government, a lot to see, a lot to monitor. Uh, perhaps some surprises in the end. You never know. It is Israeli politics. So thanks for joining us, Senior Knesset Reporter for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, and we hope Thank to have you again in the near future. Thanks. Thank you. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics. I'm happy to welcome for the first time to the show Max Newberger of Jewish Insider. Jewish Insider quickly becoming an influential morning email slash tip sheet for anybody following the world of Jewish politics, Jewish business. Max, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on. All right. First, before we delve into politics and, and all the political minutiae like, that we like to do, tell tell the audience a little bit about Jewish Insider and why – if they're currently subscribing, they should make sure to read it every day. And if they're not subscribing, they certainly should. Look, so a lot of our readers, they're very busy. They're, you know, top business or political leaders. And basically what we offer is in five minutes, you know, each morning we'll deliver a curated digest, sort of covers all the important news and events that in, you know, D.C. and political talk, uh, they say, is driving the day. Um, and it's a combination of hard news and some lighter you know, content. We include some birthdays and other milestones, um, and it really gives more of a hometown feel uh, towards otherwise, you know, rather you know, vast and diverse uh, readership and community. Um, you know, but basically, what we're offering, we start off with a very core and you know, focused audience. Um, you know, a lot of people on the hill, a lot of you know, elected officials, ambassadors, obviously all the business leaders, and basically. We're, we've opened it up. It's free. Anyone can sign up on JewishInsider.com and basically read the same email that a lot of the you know, top leaders are reading as well. Okay, so just to, just to take off the free part for a second, what prompted you to want to create and curate and spend the time and waking up early every morning to read everything that there is out there? A free newsletter what's the business model here what are you looking to do what are you looking to accomplish look so it's it's a good question um we're driven primarily um i would say to make an impact um it sort of started by seeing a few things you know there are a few voids um there wasn't anyone really focused you know consistently on covering you know u.s politics and dc on the campaign trail um it was something that I had seen already for a few years now and some other folks as well. Um, and it was a model that, that's been established previously. Obviously, uh, there's Politico Playbook, which in the larger political realm has taken off, I think, since about 2009, 2010. And it's really this idea of building a community um, around, you know, this sort of curated newsletter. Um, and it's really a great way to get many more people, especially young professionals and millennials, actively involved in uh, Jewish political and communal affairs. So presidential year, or actually it's not even the presidential year. We're still the year before the presidential year. A presidential race uh, seems to be a very ripe time for, for growing this type of project and for getting attention for this type of project. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's been the reception out there? Uh, is it is it viral marketing? Do you actively go out and recruit uh, readers, or uh, how, how do you go ahead and uh, ta- and and gain your audience? And is it is it exclusively Jews? No, it, it's not exclusively Jews. There's a lot of you know people that are you know very 
interested in the community that are very pro-Israel in their own right and sort of want to see what, you know, uh, the community is talking about and the, by the community that's larger than just the Jewish community, it's the, sort of the pro-Israel community. Um, but you're exactly right. Presidential elections are a unique opportunity once every four years to sort of launch these new uh, media products into the mainstream. And we talk about Politico a lot. You know, it's funny to think about. They're not even a decade old. You know, they started in 2007 and 2008, you know, with that election. And presidential elections, you know, they're a time when more people are paying attention to politics. It's also, um, I would say, scoops and other original content, you know, it's more easy to come by. And so Politico did it in 2008. BuzzFeed, when they were getting started with their news division, focused on, on you know, politics and presidential politics in 2012. And it's a similar model that we're doing in 2016. So you're right. And to that extent, we have gone out and, you know, very early on focus on quality over quantity, recruiting a lot of top readers, top leaders. Um, we're in touch with all the campaigns, and they, you know, know that if they want to reach the community, you know, they can do so through us. Um, and, yeah, very focused on that, and, and I would say a combination recruiting, a lot of, you know, word of mouth. I would say our readers are amazing in that regard and that they are constantly telling their friends about us. Uh, so it's been a great ride, and, and it will be a, a very interesting and hopefully fun next 18 months. Well, it's certainly been intriguing so far, and I will admit I am a, a daily reader, and when it comes out a little bit late in the morning, it's a little bit frustrating because I feel like I don't, I don't I apologize. have my fix. Uh, together with my coffee. So you're going to have to, you have to work on the, some of the timing. Uh, very, very rarely, but occasionally. But uh, more specifically, when you say we, who, who's the we? Is this, is this a, because the th- technology allows us to do so much even on an individual basis. But do you have a network of reporters out there? Is it, are you being fed everything by different people out there? How, how does the news gathering work? Yeah. So when I say, um, we, I, I could be referring to a few things. I could be referring to the readership um, in that a lot of the readers know, and I'm constantly traveling, and I meet with as many readers as possible and try you know, establish this two-way relationship. So it's not just us sending the news each morning, but them being able to you know, send things back and share you know, whether it's events or other information with the rest of the readership. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of other reporters that are – you know, we're constantly in touch with, you know, um, who are actively involved. About two months ago, we partnered with Tribe Media, which is a nonprofit, a much larger uh, Jewish media group. They run the Jewish Journal, among other things. And so now, um, specifically to your previous question about, you know, 2016 being a real unique opportunity, we very much want to be focused and, you know, grow quick to window and by partnering with this larger uh, media group we're going to do that you know take a lot of structure um that need to you know redundantly build on our own side it sounds fascinating just uh max for a second i seems that your audio is a little bit choppy um so just that i don't know if you can if either you're you're on the move or not but uh uh, let's just, let's focus for a second on the, the, the Jewish vote. And it, it, it never ceases to astound me. It's good for me, people in the business out there, 
uh, and I'm sure it's good for you, how much attention is being lavished on the Jewish vote, whether it's uh, and even at this stage. Uh, and it's it's even more incredible, given the paucity of Jewish Republicans uh, out there. And you have so much energy going towards courting Republicans in the uh, according courting Jews in the Republican primary. And you saw it this week or this week past weekend in spades at the Republican Jewish Coalition weekend in Las Vegas. Um, that also has to do with Sheldon Adelson. We'll talk about that for a second. But Rand Paul coming to Brooklyn and all kinds of and a lot of kickoffs of the various candidates have included uh, uh, Jews in in their messaging in even Orthodox Jews, which are even smaller subset of the uh, of the Jewish community and certainly on the Republican side. So what is what to what do you do you attribute all this attention when when it comes to winning a Republican primary? It's pro, the Jewish vote is not going to be determinative. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. Um, I think it comes down to a few things. One, uh, we as in the Jewish community tend to be very actively involved, more so than you know our our numbers uh, should indicate. But I think you know you, you mentioned Jewish voters. I think if we're being honest, a lot of it has to do with um, Jewish donors, um, especially at this point in the race, mattering a lot more. Uh, the other thing I would say is larger than just the Jewish community or the Jewish vote is very much the fact that Israel and foreign policy has played a much larger role and seeming, you know, seemingly will going ahead in this cycle than it has previously. And so you mentioned this past weekend that there was a large gathering in Las Vegas. There's also a large gathering in Iowa. And from you know, the reports I heard, uh, Israel was mentioned, you know, just as much in Iowa, you know, as it was in Las Vegas. And you have, um, you know, I think in the larger Republican realm, especially among the grassroots, not necessarily, you know, limited to the Jewish community, support for Israel has become a huge issue. Um, so I think it's a combination of current events and then also um, donor trends and a little bit of voter trends. I think it's all um, piling on, you know, to to contribute to that. So let, let's talk for a second about this past weekend in Las Vegas, Republican Jewish Coalition, definitely the most influential uh Jewish organization on the Republican side. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. that's uh, fair as, you know, and, and certainly an umbrella group for many types of Jewish Republicans. Uh, they held a um, uh, their events the weekend and uh, it was had a record crowd, record turnout, also a record turnout from the Orthodox community, I think, from what they've ever had, which I which is also fascinating. And I know that you cover, you know, a lot of from a lot of things that uh, somebody with a non-Orthodox perspective might miss. So anything interesting and given our audience on this show, it's which is primarily Orthodox, anything interesting, any tidbits that you want to share? And then we'll we'll kind of segue into some things that are more political. Anything that you noticed about the RJC weekend that's particularly noteworthy that may not have uh, made it out there? Yeah, so definitely, I think. The RJC uh, Las Vegas spring meeting, it's been going on for you know several years now. And especially as we're approaching a presidential year, it's really become a gathering uh, spot of where, you know, just a lot of people converge, you know, from across the country on Las Vegas for, you know, for those two, three days. 
And um, specifically, you know, specifically from what, you know, what I gathered was that this year had by far, you know, the, the largest representation, you know, for the Orthodox community that there's ever been. Uh, you know, the numbers that I was hearing was about 200 out of 750. And, you know, for the first time ever, the entire weekend, you know, was fully kosher. Um, they had, you know, uh, davening for um, the whole weekend. And, um, yeah, it was very, very impressive. Was, they were very accommodating. And I think it's, it's in, you know, it shows a, a larger trend of, you know, the Orthodox community, whether in Teaneck, Long Island, uh, getting very, you know, actively involved and, and showing up. Okay, so the RJC weekend is frequently called the Adelson primary, and I, I think that's a misnomer. Certainly, Sheldon Adelson is the star power that attracts, and his presence attracts all the top-tier candidates, everybody who's looking for his coveted support. But there was a little more than just Sheldon Adelson in the weekends, correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're talking, you know, you're talking, you know, pretty much all the top donors, you know, on the Republican side, you know, every, all the campaigns, all the likely campaigns, you know, had a lot of their top bundlers there talking to people. A lot of what was going on was outside of the program, was in the hallways, was in the one-on-one meetings. Um, and yeah, to a certain extent, it is called the Sheldon primary. It's at his hotel. Um, but it's, it's become a lot, you know, a lot bigger than that. Um, and he's still obviously extremely significant. Um, what's interesting though, I would say about 2016 and what, what make, what might, uh, make it more fascinating is that really, all a candidate needs is one billionaire to sign up and they can really, you know, stay in. And it's really going to be interesting, especially combined with, you know, the Republicans moving up their convention this go around to, I think, you know, early July. And, you know, that and, and the super PACs influence, um, it's really going to be interesting to see how this primary is decided in that you could theoretically have candidates lose the first few uh, states and still stay in because they have the financial backing that they need. Um, and, you know, some people have already been saying that we might have something we haven't had since the early 70s, and that's, you know, a contested convention. Uh, we'll see if that remains true, but it's it definitely makes things interesting. So reports surfacing, uh, I think, that, you know, particularly, I guess, the National Review broke uh, – a story uh, yesterday or actually two days ago saying that Jeb Bush, uh, the putative uh, front runner, although not necessarily the front runner, uh, you know, according to most polling, has is not getting Sheldon Adelson's support and uh, and pretty pretty much uh, specifically around uh, a Jewish issue or uh, his James Baker's appearance and speaking at J Street. Uh, a month ago, and we we talked about James Baker going uh, to J Street, and uh, to me it was it was totally shocking that they would uh, and clumsy and just not uh, not a uh, list type campaigning uh, to allow him to do that. You know, it's kind of either you're in or out. But uh, but that seems to have cost him Adelson's support, which will then be going in a different direction. Question is, uh, you know, is he still? Is this a situation like four years ago where Adelson 
essentially sponsored uh, Newt Gingrich, and the rest of the RJC establishment was with Mitt Romney. Uh, is it now a situation where the most of the RJC establishment money is still going to be with Jeb Bush or is going to Jeb Bush, and uh, Adelson is going to pick a different candidate? Yeah, so um, in terms of the RJC coalescing around one candidate, I don't think that's going to happen You know, nearly to the degree it was with Romney. Um, I mean, you have a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of uh, people have already signed up with Jeb early on. Um, but then there's also a lot of people are with um, Scott Walker and Marco Rubio and even Ted Cruz. And I think more than that, you talk about who's, uh, who's going to be, you know, Sheldon's candidate. You know, I, I doubt that he's going to announce that, you know, very early on because he's still, I think he likes this idea of there being a Sheldon, you know, primary. So last, you know, last week there were rumors about Rubio. It's unclear, you know, to what extent those are accurate. Um, you know, one name that a lot of people are talking about, although they're not sure, you know, how far he's going to go is Lindsey Graham. They, you know, many people think that Lindsey Graham is, you know, the best on these issues. He's, you know, arguably the most experienced um, on them. So you have a lot of people who, yeah, they, they like Jeb. They might they might be supporting Jeb. They might be uh, supporting Scott Walker. But they also have a lot of appreciation, you know, to Lindsey Graham for the past and, you know, like him a lot going forward. So what they might do is support, you know, multiple candidates and, you know, support, you know, someone like a Lindsey Graham and a Scott Walker or Lindsey Graham and a Jeb Bush. And then sort of give it, give Lindsey Graham a few months. If he catches, you know, lightning in a bottle, you know, they'll double down. But if not, you know, they'll sort of move on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's by no means are they coalescing around any one candidate. I think, in fact, because there's maybe 20 some odd candidates, you'll have people supporting multiple ones at this point. And now to just switch sides for a second, the entry uh, of the first Jewish candidate into this uh, 2016 race uh, is happening. Uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont uh, is now going is now looking to be the first Jewish president. Uh, so uh, there's a there's just a cornucopia of Jewish uh, of Jewish uh, uh, you know, uh, Jewish opportunities here. Um, you know, everybody is looking is running after Jewish voters and Jewish money. And uh, now you have a Jewish candidate. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see you know, what effect he has on, I would say, Hillary and the Democratic side. Um, again, Hillary is by far the, the favorite there, but, you know, he could, whether it's through debates or otherwise, he could have a real effect on a lot of the issues, and that seems to be, you know, his main motivation in running is, you know, to have that influence on the issues that he cares you know, a lot. I would, um, I would imagine that nobody from the RJC was kind of waiting to see if Bernie Sanders was getting into the race uh, before they made their decisions. I would imagine not. I think they're, you know, to the extent that they're um, paying attention to the Democratic side, it's it's pretty focused on Hillary at this point. Okay, one more RJC question while we're while we're on there, and I want to then just address in the short time uh, one other topic uh, is. If you look at certain and I, I think we saw each other at CPAC uh, this year and uh, also at APAC, the, the enormous number of younger voters or younger and when I mean younger, you know, I'd say like 40, you know, or 45 and younger 
of younger people engaged in these conferences and going to these conferences. The RJC has had a reputation in the past of being of catering to an older crowd, an older moneyed crowd. Has that changed at all now that they had record number of attendance? You know, I had never been there uh, prior, so I, you know, can't speak to what it was and, and what it is now. Um, I think in, in general, especially, you know, around presidential politics, you'll see a lot of young people getting involved. It's a good opportunity, especially if young people are out there thinking about joining any of these campaigns. Can't think of a better year when you have all these choices and everyone's eager, um, you know, to, to, gain talent, especially, you know, to gain, you know, people that are involved with this community. Like you said, there's a lot of campaigns who are, you know, trying to make inroads. Um, but, yeah, you, at, you know, we covered CPAC, was very impressed with um, with the attendance there, um, and even at APAC. So I think, I think a lot of, you know, organizations traditionally have been very focused on catering to the donors who are, actually going to be supporting them financially and more more of them are are getting the idea that they need to also get young people involved and you know uh bring them in to these conferences etc so um it's always a good thing i would say when when young people get involved okay last uh last topic for you and i think this is one that uh, i got enmeshed in i'll address that later in my closing remarks is uh, Rand paul goes to brooklyn and uh yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting is that, you know, I, obviously I, I operate in New York and, you know, I know the New York scene, but I can't remember really the last time that a presidential candidate did a did an event or an open event in Orthodox Brooklyn. It's just not it really just hasn't happened. So that was actually mm-hmm. you know, it was really something for the fact that that was. You know that that was that was done. Uh, wasn't even a fundraiser. Usually, that's you know the only things that you would go to Brooklyn for. So, what is um, what is Rand Paul trying to do, uh, in your opinion, covering covering this yeah, race? Look, he didn't he, go. Obviously, he didn't go to Vegas, he, and he went to Brooklyn. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. He has a very he's a different a different candidate, and he's running a different campaign, and it's very interesting at that. I mean. Uh, with Jewish Insider, we also cover the business and tech world. And so, uh, we went down to Austin for South by Southwest, planning to very much cover the tech scene. And lo and behold, Rand Paul came and he actually spoke and opened up an office in Austin. And no presidential candidate and hardly any politicians do that, you know, go there as well. So he spoke, you know, he goes to conferences such as that visited the south side of Chicago and, and went to uh, to Brooklyn, you know, places that aren't typical. But, you know, Rand Paul's a very interesting, you know, candidate to watch. I think a lot of people are underestimating him in a way. Um, a lot of the – and, look, it's important, you know, not to forget his dad came in second place in New Hampshire. And, you know, his dad has so much more baggage than he does. And I would – one other interesting thing as it relates to Rand Paul, we talk about there being, you know, these 20-some-odd candidates on the Republican side of the aisle. The one, the one who benefits the most from that is Rand Paul because by far he's got, you know, the most wide-open lane um, and combined with, you know, through his dad's previous two runs, arguably the most passionate base. So I'm not saying he'll, he'll necessarily win, but he'll definitely be a force. 
And to the extent that it goes to the convention, it will be very interesting, you know, to watch. But um, he's 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 going to make a you know a strong effort. So we'll see. And and a lot of a lot of his effort has to do with uh, going places that Republicans and you know presidential candidates haven't typically gone in the past. Yeah, certainly. And I, I actually I actually would have hoped he would have thought, focused a little more on. Uh, domestic issues in that uh, in in that engagement rather than talk over and over about uh, or try and uh, try and correct the record, if you will, on on foreign policy issues. But you know, look, uh, not every not every event is going to be perfect, and we'll see. But I agree yeah, with you. Definitely that's, that's has a base within the party and a strong base within the party. Yeah, and that's obviously Sorry, where the focus has been. So. Um... And you saw, obviously, the news today that one of his top donors out of New Jersey, um, who is between Walker and Rand, uh, came out that he's, you know, going with Walker. So I think the foreign policy, especially considering his dad's prior runs, has been, you know, where the most concern is. Um, and so I think he, he was seeking to address that. To what extent he was successful, yeah. you know, is yet to be determined. Well, we shall see as this unfolds. Max Newberg from Jewish Insider. Uh, how do people sign up for the sheet, for your tip sheet, morning email? Go to, yeah, jewishinsider.com. You know, very simple. And uh, you can also reach out to us through there, and, and we'll we'll do our best to reply and be in touch. And, it, again, it should be a very interesting next 18 months, and we're looking forward. Okay, you heard it here, folks. If you are interested and you're listening to this show, trying to get the insider uh, scoop on politics, you're definitely going to be interested in what Max is putting together on a daily basis from Jewish Insider. Thanks for joining us, and we'll hope to have you again as this race progresses. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics, sponsored by Beckerman. Pleased to have back on the show uh, Zach Fink, our go-to guy regarding everything Chris Christie, everything Jersey. And specifically with regard to Bridgegate and the uh, ancillary scandals around Bridgegate. Uh, Zach, welcome back to Spin Class. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Michael. So I, I know that I've gotten feedback from certain people. Why do you keep talking about this? Why is Bridgegate interesting? And I, I guess I should spend two seconds explaining particularly why, you know, it's my show, so I might as well talk about what I want to talk about. But <laughs> I worked in government, and it never – imagine – that somebody would just decide to close a runway in the airport or somebody would just decide to do something just because they thought it was funny. Closing a bridge, lanes, et cetera, is so egregious, so detrimental to the public. So, And I think that people really haven't focused enough, I guess, if you don't live in Fort Lee or in Bergen County on what happened, such a dereliction of duty. So I, I find it to be crazy. I find the fact that people can even cook this kind of thing up to be uh, absolutely beyond the pale and uh, eventually we got to figure out where the chips are going to fall. So that's why I'm back at it. But we are potentially now looking at indictments, and that's why I want to have Zach back on. We're also looking at some more information with regard to Port Authority Chairman uh, Samson, who who has resigned, former Port Authority Chairman Samson, and uh, there's some juicy details regarding to that. So Zach, fill us in on what's going on. What's the latest? 
Well, just as you've been saying, Michael, you know, there has been a lot of uh, chatter about this for several weeks. We've been hearing the indictments could come down any day now. Uh, you know, I had also heard perhaps today or even tomorrow. Uh, so something is clearly happening. Things are beginning to, to, to wind down in terms of the investigation, and they are ready to move forward. It's just a question of when. But, but my suspicion is it will be in the next couple of weeks. I think we're going to see a number of indictments. There was a report on Bloomberg uh, that uh, David Wildstein, who was at the center of the scandal, worked for the Port Authority. Christie appointee will be pleading guilty. I don't have independent confirmation of that, but I think that is certainly a possibility. And the fact that that's gotten out there and there haven't been vigorous denials leads me to believe that that's the direction that that is going. And I think we'll see a number of indictments. I think we'll see uh, Bridget Kelly, who is the one who wrote that infamous email, Time for Some Traffic Problems in Fort Lee. I think you're looking at Bill Baroni, who was also at the Port Authority, an appointee of Christie, and I think there are some other names out there that are a possibility. Bill Stepien, very close to Chris Christie, also fired along with Bridget Kelly by Governor Christie when the scandal broke. And another outlier out there is Phil Kwan, who was close to uh, Christie as well. Name hasn't been in the press that much, but he could potentially be in trouble as well. So we'll wait to see how that all goes down. So you're talking indictments in the plural. With you, you're, you're saying potentially five or six people going uh, going and getting indicted, but none of them are named Chris Christie. Clearly, correct. And 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 I think that the, you know that, that this is you you mentioned, which I think was a very good synopsis at the top of the show, just why this is significant and why why it's had you know it's resonated and stayed in the news. There's of course the other point here, which is the the presidential politics that come into that. You know, Chris Christie was considered at one point, you know, possibly even the front runner for the GOP nomination. Obviously that goes back a ways because in the last several weeks, uh, he has really fallen off the radar and there's a, a, a lot of speculation that a big part of the reason for that is his judgment and particularly this scandal. So whether or not this touches him directly, that he had direct knowledge, my sense is he did not, or at least they're not going to try and prove that in court. But it does go to the people he surrounded himself with. If there are, like, let's say, five or six indictments, and they're all people who are Christie appointees or close to Christie, you know, it's going to raise some serious questions. It may very well be the final nail in the coffin of his presidential ambitions. Okay, now let's switch to uh, to Sampson for a second. Uh, as Port Authority, former Chairman John Sampson, who potentially and it's been reported pretty and pretty in pretty intricate detail uh how he solicited united airlines for special favors if you will as part of negotiation correct the this uh it was a report that came out this week that was just fantastic from uh david k formerly of the new york times now also with bloomberg uh where he wrote about a dinner in september of 2011 at that dinner was the ceo of united airlines united and continentals you know merged uh, Continental has had a hub at Newark. It's a, it's a big source of business at Newark Liberty International Airport. According to the report at this dinner, and United was seeking major public investment and support for the Port Authority. David Sampson was the chairman of the Port Authority, uh, including they wanted a $600 million extension of the PATH train out to Newark uh, Liberty Airport from the city there. Uh, which obviously would be a big big investment of public money. Uh, according to this report, at the dinner, um, David Sampson asked the CEO, somewhat playfully, but, but it was interpreted as he was legitimately asking, uh, why a certain route had been discontinued by United. Basically, this is a, a flight from Newark to Columbia, South Carolina. David Sampson and his wife had a weekend home, 
uh, not far away from Columbia. And when the flight was discontinued in 2009, because it was a money loser, it made his ability to get to that home that much more difficult uh, because he had to fly into, uh, where was it, Charlotte, Sorry, Charlotte, and that was 150 miles away. So, can you imagine? Yeah. That's a, that's just horrible that that kid that they'd be put through that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, he, you know, it, it, assuming that this is public money involved and this is a business dinner, for you to ask for that flight to be reinstated to make your commute to your summer home a little bit easier, you know, that's a big, big problem. And as it turns out, the flight was reinstated. Even though, you know, again, the airlines are in this business to make money if they discontinued the flights because they were losing money, but they, they, they reinstated it after that ask. So that apparently has been, um, one of the major issues that the U.S. Attorney's Office has been looking into. And I suspect we're going to hear something about that when these indictments actually do come down. Okay. So there's a potential for a lot more jeopardy for, uh, uh, for Samson and potentially others in this. I mean, that, that's really incredible that, that, that can happen. And, and the flight was canceled, right? Right after he resigned? Yeah, the, the flight, it, it began, you began hearing that buzzword, uh, you know, the buzzwords chairman's flight. Um, it was eventually canceled, you know, um, but it got out there pretty quickly that, that this had been asked for and had been delivered. And, you know, there, there were other issues related to Samson and his law firm. Keep in mind, they're a very plugged-in law firm in New Jersey um, regarding the uh, expansion at Atlantic City Airport, for example. Port Authority was going to do a big add-on there to try and make that a much bigger, uh, more central airport in terms of uh, traffic on the, uh, the, you know, the mid-Atlantic states. Um, you know, Samson apparently wielded a, a, a big role in uh, trying to get that expansion through, and his law firm was involved. So there there are a number of, of issues where Samson was just kind of right at the center of some of these major projects that involved deals between the private sector and the Port Authority. Um, so the thought is that Samson is going to lose just about everything. I mean, that, that, that if anybody's in very serious trouble over this, it's him. Wow. Wow. So uh, if anything, Zach, our conversation today is going to be premature. We, we need to we need to pick up on this at a later date when there's some uh, more and more juicy stuff. I appreciate their update uh, for the audience on this. And I, I personally think uh, for reporters, Bridgegate and its surrounding uh, is the gift that gives uh, keeps on giving. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very Jersey. You know, this whole thing, the way it is. Very unraveled. Jersey. Oh, it really is. Wow. It, I hate this. <laughs> absolutely could not be a, a, you know, paint, paint a more accurate picture of, of New Jersey and the layers upon layers and layers of corruption there. Okay, Zach Fink from Time Warner Cable. Uh, we're going to definitely pick this up in the coming weeks. I can feel almost that things are coming around. Yeah, Michael, thanks so much for having me. We'll talk again soon. Okay, you got it. This is spin class. And as we close, I want to give a little commentary, a little discussion. Uh, I was, uh, embroiled, I embroiled, drawn into, uh, this Rand Paul event in Brooklyn. And I got some criticism from people for being quoted coming to his event, coming to his campaign event, and then being critical of him on foreign policy. Cause I said, well, the guy thinks that Muammar Gaddafi should still be in power. Saddam Hussein should still be in power because they were a bulwark against Islamic fundamentalism. And truthfully, I think that's ridiculous. I think the idea that, well, if people rise out against brutal secular dictators, uh, the United States won't stand with them because we might have an Islamic fundamentalist government. What about Tunisia? What about Egypt? Uh, it's, it's just, it's a little bit surprising that he would have such a, uh, a, a, 
I, I, in my mind, amateurish view of foreign policy. But, you know, what was amazing there is this event was, was, the invitation said it was a conversation with Rand Paul. A conversation. Now, there was no conversation. And I'll, I'll just be blunt about it. This was, uh, pre-scripted, pre-screened, if you will. Uh, four questions or five questions from various people who had pre-picked. And it was like a script. We didn't get to ask any questions. I had my hand up. Other people were wanted to ask questions. Nobody wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about domestic thing. I wanted Rand Paul as a libertarian to talk about uh, the Indiana religious freedom uh, issue. I wanted to talk about uh, uh, issues of life and, re- and religious freedom and education. There was an education uh, question because I think he has interesting views. I wanted to talk about whether, whether the Republican Party has a, had, doesn't have a good brand. These are good Rand Paul issues, but instead we focused on the same thing. Are you an anti-Semite? What a ridiculous question. Are you an anti-Semite? I mean, it's pretty clear to everybody. Rand Paul is not an anti-Semite. And if you didn't know it, you know it now because I just said He's not an anti-Semite. So let's get past it. Let's get past the stupidity. Let's talk about real things. But there's, but there's, but nobody really wanted to have a real conversation. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe the idea was just take a pictures with a couple rabbis. But what did you have to invite other people there for to go along and be, and then expect that they're, you invited the media, you invite dozens of reporters. There are possibly more reporters in the room than there were attendees. Uh, of of this Jewish leadership meeting and not to knock Jewish leadership, but there's a lot of Jewish leadership out there and that's a good thing. Uh, and, but what about the idea that you shouldn't be able to talk? You should, I have to be grateful to be invited. So therefore I can't express my views. I think he's out of the Republican mainstream. I don't see how somebody with those foreign policy views can get, uh, can get the nomination. I'm a registered Republican. As opposed to many other people in the room, they were so happy that a different attendee, different Jewish leader talked about how he had a nuanced and thoughtful approach to foreign policy. I find that pretty surprising. Uh, but that guy was a Democrat. He's a registered Democrat. He's not voting for Rand Paul in the primary. He is – I have no idea whether he's going to vote for Rand Paul in the general election if he's on the ballot. But right now with the Republican primary – I'm entitled to vote. That guy isn't, and somehow make uh, be critical so much so that the Rand Paul campaign called one of the reporters that I spoke to to say that I should not have been included in the story. That's amazing. That is truly amazing that I would be critical because I'm a political operative. Well, right now I'm not working for any of the candidates. I'm entitled to speak my mind. And you know what? I do it here. I do it every Thursday. And I'm going to continue doing it here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thanks for joining us. Didn't get to Baltimore. Uh, talk about Baltimore, Rummy's whole town. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll have to pick that up next week. And thanks for joining us here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.